Hello, this is Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Gillian McIver, uh, an art and cinema historian, curatrix, someone working on visual aesthetics, and the intersection of that whole world in visual art, in cinema, with magic. Gillian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about uh, <laughs> Philippe Jacques de Lutebourg. Hi, thank you. Yes, well, he, he had a few name changes in his life. Um, Philip Jacques, and then uh, when he moved to the UK, to London, specifically, he, he anglicized his name to Philip James. So, of course, the problem when you're researching him is that you've got to make a, a search for both, uh, mm. both versions of the name. Yeah. So let me start by introducing Lauterborg. Uh, he was born in uh, 1740 in uh, Strasbourg, which is, uh, as you probably know, a city that's got quite a strong German influence. It's on the border between uh, essentially that contested part between France and Germany. Uh, his family was Protestant as opposed to Catholic, like the majority of French. But Strasbourg was also a really major city for esoteric practices. So he grew up in quite an unusual area. Uh, he made his way to Paris, where he uh, trained as a painter. He was very successful, very young. He was the youngest painter ever elected to the French Academy, wow. uh, which was quite an honor. He was really championed by a number of the uh, important uh, philosophers and critics, particularly Denis Diderot, who really loved his work. Although even at that early point, he believed that uh, Lauterbourg's colors were overly dramatic and exaggerated, okay. which becomes a bit important when we look at his later work. He then made his way uh, in the early 1770s over to London. But this is interesting because in London, he didn't present himself as a painter, but as a stage designer. And he started working for David Garrick at the Drury Lane Theatre. Garrick was one of the most important actors and uh, theatre owners in 18th century London and was really innovative in bringing a new kind of realism to the stage. So Lauterbourg started to work with him and what he did is he designed special effects. He was really the first VFX artist on the English stage and his VFX were really, apparently really spectacular. From this theatre work, he uh, was he would continue to paint. He joined the, the uh, Royal Academy in London as well. And the other thing that he did was uh, develop probably the first ever motion picture apparatus. Now, it didn't have film because film wasn't invented then, but it was a complex system of special effects, moving paintings, light effects, and so on. This was called the Idafusicon. So he was really involved in that intersection of art and technology and performance and the creation of illusions, I think, is the best way of, of describing it. But he also, and this is something which we're going to talk about at length, he was a, from very early on a practicing alchemist and a practitioner of different kinds of magic. He was a very close friend of Cagliostro, and he uh, was also, he had spent a couple of years of his life as a supposedly quite successful faith healer. So very interesting and unusual person who somehow has fallen between the cracks of history 
when I discovered him, I found that was very strange because there is no actual biography of him. There are some quite high quality articles and he appears in biographies of other people. So he's a very good friend of Thomas Gainsborough, for example. So you'll see him referred to in books about Gainsborough. He was a friend of Cagliostro. Um, he was active sort of in the theater. So he appears in theater histories. But he's never really considered as a single entity who managed to do all kinds of remarkable things in one lifetime. And that's how I got interested in researching him. That's why we are so delighted to be able to talk to you, as to get it from the horse's mouth, as it were, bringing to light, bringing to light uh, an unjustly forgotten guy. This guy's not just forgotten. It's not just like with Newton or someone like that, where they we forget collectively his esoteric side. Uh, it's like just no one knows this guy's name, even except, as you say, some some art historians, some theater historians, and so on. Now, you mentioned the Eidophysikon. And this thing is amazing. I understand you have reconstructed sort of picture of it, which we'll post on the, the little gallery yeah. to well, accompany was, this episode. There was a picture uh, drawn. It's an engraving, I think, drawn at the time. So it's about as accurate as the 1780s could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was considered to be accurate. No photography back then. But a few people have tried to reconstruct it in the 20th century. So I will definitely give you some pictures of that. Cool. But we're thinking of something like an eight foot by six foot box. Is that right? You, and yeah, you sort of stick I mean, your head inside it and then have this visual experience? No, no, no. This is what this is where, where things become even more interesting. It wasn't actually something that you go and stick uh, your head in sort of on its own. It was something that you experienced collectively. And this is why I think it's really interesting because it shows one thing I think about the history of cinema is that we understand that cinema, uh, you know, has a technological basis, the invention of, um, you know, light sensitive film and so on. And the idea of how you can create uh, moving pictures out of a rapid succession of still images. But the experience of cinema sitting in a darkened room, or everybody sitting in a chair together facing in a direction looking at a single fixed point, that is something that, you know, we assume it just came out of theater. And it did, but what people don't necessarily know is that was something that actually originated with Lauterborg in a sense, because having all this experience of doing live theater, he kind of created this box, but he placed this box into a room with seating and the room was dark and it was lit only by the lighting effects. So actually we would go together into this room in a group of people, maybe 30 or 50 or 100, I'm not sure how many exactly the seating was. And we would be presented with this box, which was completely self-contained. It had the mechanism for moving the pictures. It had spaces, I suppose, for, you know, operators to, you know, operate the, uh, the... remember there was no electricity. So this was literally done with candles and lamps and, various kind of flammable materials. But I think what's interesting, I think, is the idea that it was we would recognize it as a cinema, really, or as theater, as something that, that it was really collective. And unlike theater, 
the Ida Fusicon performances were infinitely repeatable because they were not, they didn't have actors. They would have uh, mechanisms. So as long as you had the mechanisms set up properly, the same as you would with the projector, the show would just continue to run. And that's why he was able to sell the Ida Fusicon when after a couple of years he was bored of it. He was able to sell it and the person who purchased it could just keep running the show because, and this is where I think it's very, very much like cinema. The yeah. idea of you make one film and you show it indefinitely. You make one Ida Fusicon project and you can just show it for years on end. And so I think it's the cinematic thinking actually, which is, which is particularly interesting. For sure. Uh, so this isn't, as I was sort of falsely imagining it, the ancestor of those kind of um, little binoculars that you got in the Victorian period where you'd look in and it would have a 3D image by combining two images together. This is much more like the Magic Lantern slideshow. Yeah, but that was like a family exactly. context usually. This is the public exactly. context. Mm, you pay a ticket, you go in. Mm. So, um, yeah. So, and that, I think that's really interesting because that means it's not just a, uh, it's really part of cultural history. Um, it's part of that whole amazing history of sort of sideshows and attractions that we were aware of, but it goes right back to the 18th century. And the the position of magic and esoteric practices within that is really interesting because, of course, magic, and certainly in the 18th century, was uh, very much also part of uh public exhibition and display, magic of all kinds. I mean, everything from sort of card tricks to really serious magical practices could be done in this sort of public event context, which is kind of interesting. It's very interesting. It's This is the time when, the, the height of the age of reason, where mm. we see really the first stirrings of the movement that we're going to eventually end up calling occultism. And maybe exactly. maybe occultism with a capital O to we're not talking about the occult, this very vague and kind yeah. of squishy category. We're talking about people doing these organized initiatory orders, having something to do with Freemasonry in vibe, but not being Freemasonry and getting seriously esoteric, but publicly esoteric in this case. Right. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us more about this guy, the, the esoteric side of this guy's life? Well, I mean, it was really, uh, he was really deeply embedded in it. And I think the thing that surprised and interested me, because I mean, I studied history, that was my first degree. And I was particularly interested in 18th century history, 18th and 19th. So big O occultism, you know, reared its head pretty early on in my, uh, in my uh, education. But what I didn't really understand is how much of it was present in the 18th century. I'd always seen this sort of the the kind of Victorian occultism uh, as sort of that's when it all started. It turned out, no, there was a huge revival, publishing of grimoires and uh, the, de the real development of the use of tarot in the sort of mid to late 18th century. So the 18th century from an occultist point of view was quite split between the first half of the 18th century uh, which we could really call that sort of period of high enlightenment where anything of the mystical nature was sort of scoffed at. And the later part of the 18th century where there was a revived appreciation for it, 
And Lauterburg almost exemplifies that, the idea of a very modern, very active, very urban, very involved kind of person, an artist who was deeply, deeply embedded in the occult. And what was fascinating is how many other people were, actually, how many artists. Uh, Just off the top of my head, some of his close associates, such as uh, Richard Cosway and his wife Maria, both very good painters, uh, John Flaxman, the sculptor, and many others. Some those were quite seriously involved in uh, occult practices. But there are many who, you know, were what we might call bystanders and, you know, dipped in and out. And then you also think about Lauterburg's associations. I mean, he was a member of the academy. A number of the academicians were practitioners. Uh, he was very close friends with Thomas Gainsborough. There's no indication that Gainsborough was an occultist. But to be such good friends with Lauterburg, he obviously couldn't have had uh, an issue with it. And he must have been present at uh, conversations because Lauterburg and his friends didn't really make any secret of it. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, depending on what they were doing, but it wasn't hidden. I mean, they were openly Freemasons, all of them. Um, they Lauterburg belonged to a number of different Freemason organizations, uh, sort of the really mainstream ones. But he also uh, was quite interested in the sort of uh, more underground Kabbalistic groups. He was uh, a follower of Swedenborg. There's a, a contested painting at the Swedenborg Society in London, Portrait of Swedenborg, which is supposed to be done in the last year or so of Swedenborg's life by Lauterborg. Now, it's contested because we're not 100% sure that Lauterborg painted it, but we also don't know that he didn't. The thing I found fascinating about Lauterborg is that he was a, a practitioner of sex magic, and he and his wife Lucy, who was also an, a, a, he met her at some kind of esoteric meeting. Orgy. And. Uh, well, no, I think I don't think they met at an orgy, but who knows, actually. Yeah. But uh, they were accused of having orgies, but, uh, well, not they personally accused of having orgies, but there was this sort of puritanical element uh, in this society that criticized uh, occultists for uh, for it. But they, they were practitioners, they had a sex magic circle, which I'm not really sure what they did, actually, but... Um, they and the Causeways, Maria and Richard Causeway, led this circle. But then also, uh, he, as a f- very good friend of Cagliostro, they had a lot of plans to work together. They went to Switzerland together. Apparently, Cagliostro was supposed to uh, perform the Egyptian rite on Lauterborg, which would sort of give him a, I don't know, some kind of revivification and I suppose that may have been connected to sex magic because Lauterborg was quite a bit older than his wife, who was very attractive. And so you can imagine that there was probably some kind of, you know, personal desire to uh, to be revived. Trying to keep up. But apparently Causeway had similar uh, intentions. But actually, in the end, it didn't really happen. And they uh, Lauterborg and Cagliostro fell out. Did it did it um, not happen in the in the sense that they couldn't get the they didn't do the ritual or did it did they do the ritual but it didn't work? We don't really know. I okay. mean, there's I mean, Lauterborg tried to sue Cagliostro, and so the question is really open as to they did the ritual and it didn't work, and so he wanted to extricate himself 
from uh, the financial dealings that they'd made. Or for whatever reason, there was Cagliostro's ritual was never going to work. And so therefore, he didn't really want to dare to do it. I mean, the problem with Cagliostro, I think, is that he's always, always represented as a charlatan and a con man. But the reality is we don't actually know if he was. You know, all of the things that are written about him come from his enemies or people who fell out with him. And I, I just, my personal feeling researching it is, is, is don't work on the assumption that he was. Keep an open mind. Yeah. It um, may be that, uh, that, he, that he did have some really important uh, knowledge, well, whether or not it would work on reviving a middle-aged man to be a sort of stallion hey. with his wife is another thing altogether. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Cagliostro was a charlatan. I'm with you. Um, what's interesting about that, it seems to me, in the context of stuff I've been talking about recently with other uh, specialists, is how maybe the difference between just a regular old con man mm. and an esoteric wisdom source mm. is the regular old con man is either innocent till proven guilty or proven guilty. Like you are a con man. You, you sold these people these shares in a company that didn't exist, whatever. You, uh, you made a bunch of promises and got elected to the presidency of a country based on bullshit, whatever the con man in question is doing. These esoteric practitioners, I think of Blavatsky, I think of Crowley, the ones who are well aware of showmanship, trickery, illusion, uh, the Barnum effect, all that stuff. But are serious at the same time, they're, they kind of stay on this liminal space where you can't just say they're a con man. They, there's this, this irreducibility to what they're doing, and that's kind of the definition of what that type of person is. You know what I mean? It's always going to be con man plus. Or, and the question of can you use, and this is a very relevant question for de Lutteberg, it seems to me, because he's in theater and he's, he's crafting technological marvels to make convincing illusions and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'd call it the, um, the esoteric showman is the, the phrase that's coming to my mind right now, which uh, Crowley certainly is, which Blavatsky certainly is. I think de Lutteberg is, and is also surrounded by a whole culture of that, from what you're saying, is something different from pure con man, even if there's, we want to isolate certain things they're doing and say, oh, this is trickery. This is illusion. This is whatever. This is conning people. Now, if you were giving them seances to talk to their dead relatives and pocketing tons of money and, you know, preying on people's uh, vulnerabilities, that is, I'm not saying that it's necessarily nice or okay what people like this do. Certainly Crowley was, you know, exploiting people for money his whole life and all that sort of thing. But I'm just saying there's more to it than simple con manery. Well, I agree. And I mean, I think certainly in the case of Cagliostro, he was considered to be a con man, but by his enemies. Yet many people, um, Lauthaborg included, who were really obviously objectively very successful individuals, they believed that he had knowledge. And I, I think the comparison with Blavatsky and Crowley is really great because they, they had a lot of knowledge. They did alienate people. But at the same time, you know, they also were, you know, they were trying to, let's say, I don't even want to say make money, but they were trying to survive and to, to you know, finance themselves through their, through their work, which, 
you know, when you combine that with showmanship, the charge of con man definitely comes in. But I think we need to scratch those words from our consideration and look really more at the specifics. Now, Lauterberg was in an interesting situation because he wasn't actually, um, he himself wasn't accused of charlatanry, uh, but he was, his associations with the esoteric kind of put a bit of a question mark over his head, particularly in the later period after the Gordon riots in the 1780s. Now, why this is important is uh, the Gordon riots was a big uprising in London and which uh, had a variety of different causes, but it was uh, often seemed to be uh, around the decision of the the government to... um, free Catholics from some of their uh, some of the restrictions which were imposed I guess after the uh, during Cromwell's period and mm. so there was this attempt to kind of liberate Catholicism in England from some of its restrictions but a number of people who opposed the government feared that this was basically you know a sort of a precursor to a whole bunch of other uh, repressions which were going to come in so there were riots now george gordon who was seen as one of the leaders of the riots he was certainly a kind of a hot-headed person given to inflammatory oratory but he was also deeply involved in london's sort of somewhat underground occult circles which is not well known actually uh, he was a, a sort of a young aristocrat, I think Scottish aristocrat, n- known to not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. He was known to be dumb and uh, and impressionable. But he was interested in magic, and so he was present at many of these circles. So Lauterborg knew him. And, uh, you know, he was known. I wouldn't say he was a friend of Lauterborg, but Lauterborg knew him from these various different uh, uh, organizations and groups that they sort of you know, circulated around. So when the riots happened, I mean, they were serious. I mean, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Mansfield's his house was burnt down um, in London and uh, many other important things as well. So the government took it incredibly seriously. So after that, there came more of a taint to uh, the practitioners of occultism. And uh, Lauterborg's friendship with Cagliostro was interpreted by some people, not by everybody, but some people as being uh, problematic. You know, why do you hang around with this guy? No good will come of it. The other thing we know is that the government increasingly started to view involvement in esoteric circles, many of which were very underground, actually. Not all of them, uh, but some of them were. Not because they were doing anything subversive, but because the nature of the work was that it wasn't something that was really available to to you know people who weren't prepared to to do the the seek after the knowledge so the government mm. started to be somewhat uh, dubious about these people and this is why fast forwarding a bit cuz I'm going to talk about the faith healing when Lauterborg and Lucy returned to London from Switzerland where they had gone with Cagliostro they set up a faith healing practice in West London and they were basically told they cannot do this anymore. They were made to stop. And the reason for that, my feeling is that they were made to stop is probably because they they were faith healing for free. 
And when you gather hundreds of poor people together in sort of, uh, this is after the outbreak of the French Revolution, the government got really nervous. You yeah. can't bring mobs of poor people together, even if all you're doing is, you know, healing them of their scrofula or whatever it is they've got. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and I think also there there was a lot of, which is something we'll discuss in the podcast, a lot of suspicion of anything to do with Freemasonry because it was blatantly obvious that both the American and the French revolutions, these Republican anti-monarchical revolutions had been partly informed by networks organized through Freemasonic lodges, right? So, and they get together, the, you don't know what they're talking about. There's some secrecy there. So the government's just like, no, 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 no. We're not going to have any of that. And I mean, Lauterborg's interest in Freemasonry was very serious to the point that he and Cagliostro were really keen to set up a free uh, branch of Freemasonry in, in England, which would be, which would admit women. Now, there were Freemasonry groups in France which had women, and he'd been part of that when he was living in Paris. But uh, in England, no, there were no women. It was a completely female-free environment, which both he and Cagliostro thought was was very wrong. They believed that women were really important for the rituals. And so they said, no, we're going to set up our own temple, um, and it will have women. And uh, Lucy was involved in that. It didn't actually happen. It didn't come to fruition. I think probably, as you said, because of the increasing suspicion of Freemasonry. So it became harder and harder to uh, set up things like that. So in that earlier period, 1770s, early se- you know, first part of the 1780s, it was kind of open. But you know, from certainly from the late from the Gordon riots and then the uh, and then the French Revolution onward, it, be- it became much more difficult. Things started to kind of close down a lot. Hmm. Now, how do we contextualize the faith healing they were doing? This wasn't, but when when people think of faith healing nowadays, they might think of uh, Protestant revivalist get-togethers where people are you know healed in the name of Jesus or something like that. Yeah. This is something well, else. I doubt, I doubt it was that. I mean, again, we just have the just have those two words, faith healing. Don't really know what that exactly involved. But, you know, reading between the lines, first of all, Lauterberg had a lot of experience in ritual and ceremonial magic. So uh, he would have understood the, uh, I suppose, the the power of ritual and ceremony in um you know changing people's uh, mindset so there's that then there's the you know sort of what we might call folk healing traditions um which i would imagine he and lucy would have had some uh, understanding of but then don't forget he was actually an alchemist he had probably the considered to have the biggest occult library in Eng- in london at the time He'd been practicing alchemy since he was a teenager in Strasbourg. He'd learned alchemy in Strasbourg. So the idea that he might have actually had chemical knowledge of various different, um, you know, treatments is possible. I mean, I'm not sure how how far the faith healing went, if it went to, you know, um, medications or if it was more ritualistic i would imagine given his background it's possibly a combination of those yeah, things that makes sense it a couple questions here is mesmerism an influence on what he's doing or do we not know um i mean mesmer himself um he was apparently interested in but we don't know 
exactly how much of involvement he had with mesmerism. But it does seem that he had some kind of um, knowledge or understanding of the techniques. Okay. And then which is, he may have been using in the faith healing. Second question Do you happen to know what school of alchemy he subscribes to? Is he a Paracelsian? Does he follow Paracelsus? I don't. I don't know. This is this is exactly the kind of research that needs to be done. Mm. Um, now, my big task now is to try to uh, make my way through the uh, admittedly equally tiny amount of research on Lauterbourg in French. He's uh, he spent the bulk of his life in England, but because he had his his upbringing in France, there's obviously some a certain amount of interest in him. In French, and uh, suppose, I think that uh, the opportunity to investigate, you know, the alchemical schools of practice in Strasbourg might yield some information. That would be fascinating. I visited Lauterbourg's house um, in Hammersmith. It's, it's open to the public, but it's not known really for being Lauterbourg's house. It was the house of a uh, a member of the uh, arts and crafts movement, a guy called Emery Walker. And that is actually what its public face is as Emery Walker House. But he lived there. That is where Blauterberg and Lucy lived. Uh, and that's where they did their faith healing. When I was there, I was talking to the uh, proprietor and curator of the, of the uh, Emery Walker House Trust. And they were saying that their understanding is that Blauterberg actually leased two houses side by side, one he most likely used as a studio and possibly a site of faith healing, and the other is the one he most likely lived in. Um, the Emery Walker only lived in the the one part. So, but it was very interesting to actually go there and sort of stand in the in the rooms and look out and see the view, which is probably the same view that Lauterberg had. It was right on the river as well. So it was really interesting. And you can imagine if there was a large group of people all trying to get in to get faith healed, that it probably did alarm the neighbors, actually. Uh, it was a very yeah. kind of um, not really posh, but middle kind of middle class neighborhood, you know. Mm. So you get all sorts of people coming up from the slums to try to be healed uh, would have alarmed the neighbors mm. then and now, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he lives out the latter part of his life in England, in West London, is that right? Yeah. In yeah. Hammersmith. He's buried in Physic. Yeah. yeah. Have you been to his tomb as well? I haven't been to his tomb. That's something that I will do, actually. I'm trying to, I'm looking now to see if I can find any uh, additional. There's no writing left by him that we know of, but it's about looking, trying to go through the archives and seeing if there's anything around that uh, about him or by him i mean as i said there are some articles written but this most of this is not well known mm. for me i think that uh, the most interesting thing about lauterborg aside from the actual paintings he painted and the ida fusicon and this, this sort of actual achievements i think is the way in which he kind of as i said em, you know he's emblematic of a particular period where Esoteric practices were quite above board and were embedded into the culture, um, the creative culture at the time. And what's particularly interesting about him is that he believed that he was first and foremost a practitioner of magic, that his paintings and his 
stage work were emanations from his magic, which is very different from, say, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm a painter. I also do magic. Lauterborg is, I'm a magician. I also paint and do stage design. And that is an unusual take on things. He believed that his his work in the laboratory, his rituals, his ceremonial practices, his sex magic practices, these were the things that engendered the creation of his artworks. And I think that is itself a very interesting take on it, that he saw his creative work as being definitely growing out of his magical practices. That is a fascinating approach to take, especially in the 18th century, or at least especially when we're confronted with the stereotype of the 18th century. But as you point out, what we seem to maybe have is something a lot more like modernism, where you have this big group of intellectuals who are doing all forms of art, like painting, stage design, bit of innovative stuff, writing, of course, poetry, etc., involved in esoteric pursuits like magic. And, you know, there have been some studies done on the movement known as modernism and how a lot of these guys were really into the occult. And you see this later on with people like Henry Miller and William Burroughs and people like that. It's it's obvious that this sort Mm -hmm. of carries on. But the study about that in the 18th century, right, that needs to be done. There's plenty of studies of occult orders in the 18th century, although even that is in its infancy. But what's really interesting to me is the fact that those occult orders weren't a little sideshow to culture. They were deeply embedded with culture across yeah. multiple classes, across different endeavors, across different fields like theater, for example, which is insanely important in the Lon- in the 18th and early 19th century London. Theater is absolutely the beating heart of society in a certain way in London, you know. And there's all kinds of esoteric stuff happening. And... You know, everyone knows about Mozart's magic flute or whatever, but this is, it goes way deeper and the ripples are way uh, more spread out than that. Well, this is the thing, and this is why I think very often these terms which we use like modernism and enlightenment, I mean, they're useful, but only up to a point because they serve to obscure the fact that people, I suppose, have always been deeply involved in the metaphysical and that, you know, conventional state-sanctioned religions have very often not been helpful or sufficient to people, particularly um, thinkers, artists, and so on, and that we don't, that the interest in the metaphysical isn't something that we can just kind of slot into appropriate historical periods. It seems to be ongoing, but because it's been written out of the history books and we're now trying to write it back in, we actually see exactly how connected it is, how that is a, is a trajectory which goes back, you know, really unbroken, although sometimes much more underground. And so I think in a sense, it's really important to put this back into the history of culture. Because without it, we don't really understand what culture is doing. Why the big mystery, I think Karl Marx actually said once he, he admitted that um, he believed that art art sort of sat outside his you know basic model of base and superstructure because he couldn't really explain the concept of artistic inspiration and creativity. And I think that's because we've always understood that it actually is metaphysical. 
uh, and metaphysics is something that Marx couldn't really cope with. And so even he kind of, in a backhanded way, admits that there's this whole metaphysical existence that we have, and he couldn't really grasp it, but he knew that it was there. And I think that's really interesting because we know that it's there, right? Gillian McIver, stay esoteric. <laughs> I don't think I can help it. 